and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. And yes, it is just me this week. So Mark has been really poorly this week. He has taken over from me because it was me and my girls that were all voracious. Mark's been really ill. Um, so it's just going to be us lot. And then Mark can have a little listen later and give us his thoughts next week. And this week, our episode is written thanks to Kat Foley. So thank you so much, Kat. I'm sure you guys are going to love her storytelling style. And I really want to say a massive thank you to Kat for guest writing for us. She got in touch with us and said about this. And it was a really interesting, it is a really interesting case. Really interesting to read her script myself. And I'm looking forward to presenting it to you guys because I know that you're going to really enjoy hearing this. We've had some brilliant guest written scripts this season and it's really interesting to see how people's styles vary. We kind of slightly amend things every once in a while to add our own slant, but in general, we're able to kind of present them in that person's style, which I really, really like. If you're ever interested in covering a case for us, please do get in touch because we do love hearing from you guys about your your suggestions, but also we do find it's quite fun. Like everybody who's written a script to us has really enjoyed writing it and the process of that. And then also hearing it presented on, on their air. So do people say on the air anymore? Is that even a thing with podcasts? Who knows? Do I sound like an old person? I'm not really sure. Either way, huge thank you to Kat Foley for this week's script. The case takes place on Christmas Eve and we had thought about releasing it as our season finale at Christmas. However, it's only two days before Christmas that our season finale comes out. It just, I don't know, like it felt like it was very poignant, but it also felt a little bit, I don't know, like glamorizing things. I'm not really sure. I just didn't really like it. So we've got it this week instead. And I'm really hoping that Mark might have something a little bit like more lighthearted to talk about when we do the season finale. So that's out next week. During the week of Christmas is season finale of season six. And then we will be back early January with season seven. And it blows my mind. And if Mark was on with me right now, he'd be saying it blows his mind too, that we are up to seven seasons. Season seven is going to have a few extra different things in it as well. We've got some co, um, what are they called? Like collaborations. That's the word I'm thinking of. We've got some collaborations with some other podcasts coming up, which is really exciting and a couple of different guests and stuff like that. So the beginning of the new year, we're going to be really on it with making it as much fun as possible. And I think that we'll probably have to make it our New Year's resolution that we go a whole year without doing solo episodes. (laughs) I really hope we can. Anyway, I hope you join me in wishing Mark that he feels better soon and gets back on his wine soon. Because I mean, it must be quite difficult for him if he's not feeling very well. Maybe can't drink as much, or maybe he's drinking through it. I don't know. But either way, let's crack on with the episode. I just want to thank everybody for coming. It's lovely to see you all, to celebrate my birthday and indeed my life. Today, dear Lord, I am 80 and there is so much I haven't done. I hope, dear Lord, you let me live until I am 81. But if I haven't finished all I want to do, would you let me stay a while until I'm 82? A quote. Just 18 months later... The speaker of the quote, Moira Rankin, was found dead in her house by her daughter on Christmas Day. She had been viciously beaten, stripped naked and sexually assaulted with a crucifix. Her murderer? Her next door neighbour. Moira Rankin was a devout Catholic who regularly attended Mass. She was the oldest of four. She had two sisters, Annie and Claire, and a brother called Arthur. She had been married to Jerry, but was widowed. Jerry and Moira had moved to Dublin Road in Newry over 40 years before and Newry is five miles from the border of Southern Ireland, 
34 miles south of Belfast. Dublin Road is an affluent area in which all the neighbours know each other and doors are never locked. In the small front garden, in front of the terraced house, grew beautiful bright red roses. Jerry and Moira had eight children and 11 grandchildren. Moira always had time for her grandchildren and even the neighbours knew her as an extra granny. She has been described as a great neighbour and a cornerstone of the community. And I feel like we all have somebody in our lives or in our area or our street that we can think of that seems like this. I know who exactly who I was thinking of when I was reading this the first time. Her family described her as full of fun, very vibrant, very lively. She told her daughter that she had bought a present for her neighbour's two-year-old son. And when her daughter queried why, because she didn't really know those neighbours very well, her mum had replied, well, they might come over at Christmas and I wouldn't have a child in the terrace come to this house over Christmas and not have a present for them. This just shows how caring Moira was. What a lovely thing to do. So the neighbours in question were Karen Walsh and Richard Durkin and their son, the two-year-old, was James, who was born in 2006. Karen grew up in a middle-class family in Galway on the west coast of Ireland. Her dad was the principal in a primary school in Loughrow and she was from a family of high achievers. Her brother Barry studying medicine, one of her sisters Sally became a GP, sister Elaine studied clinical psychology and her other sister Geraldine followed in their father's footsteps and became a teacher. Karen, however, initially seemed to buck the trend. After college, she trained as a beautician, but she didn't continue with this. And then she went on to study biochemistry at NUI Galway. I mean, bit of a change there, it seems. Karen then continued her studies in the northeast of England and completed a pharmacy degree at the University of Sunderland. In 2004, Karen married Richard Durkin, a tax consultant, auditor, chartered accountant and financial advisor. He was also a high achiever, having formed and become a partner of Deveni and Durkin in 2000. The company would offer financial, tax and business advice. And Richard also worked alongside the assistant commissioner of the Angada Sochana and was also appointed by former health minister Mary Harney to the Council of Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland, PSI, the regulatory body for pharmacists. Um, And Mark will probably have an absolute laugh at me trying to remember how to say Garda Sochana and he would have heard me trying to find how I pronounce it um but basically um that is kind of the police in the Republic of Ireland so the National Police Force so he's doing really well and Karen and Richard were co-directors of Core Limited a chemist dispensing business they were doing well financially So well that during the Celtic Tiger, aka the Irish property bubble, they were able to let out their Dublin property whilst Karen lived the high life amongst the elite in their opulent Barclay Court Hotel. One writer, Eamon Keaton, stated, I find it interesting that Walsh lived in a hotel suite Monday to Friday. You can control your environment there. Waiters do as you say, there are no children or partners to contend with. You can easily access alcohol to balm your troubled mind. And Karen would spend her weekends in Newry. On the face of it, Karen and Richard seemed to have the perfect life. So perfect that in 2007, they were able to purchase a second home, referred to as a relaxation bolt hole in leafy Dublin Road for £400,000. However idyllic their life appeared, with Karen being titled a socialite, she was also deemed quite an enigma by her neighbours. She was rarely seen, preferring to drink alone at home. However, when working as a pharmacist, she'd shown kindness and compassion to the elderly people that she saw. Richard, on the other hand, was seen as friendly and outgoing at home. He had visited Moira at her home and he seemed welcoming and accommodating. There were reports of their behaviour being tempestuous, with one neighbour having heard 
local residents throw a party when they moved away from Dublin. So it's uh, all over the shop, really. Karen had a reputation for heavy drinking and erratic behaviour. One neighbour on Dublin Road, Irene Madden, described her as very intense and that she felt she would have exploded if someone said the wrong thing to her. Richard himself said to Irene that Karen would erupt if she had been drinking. On one occasion, Karen went on a week-long binge, leaving her Jack Russell dog alone in the house with no food or water, and neighbours actually resorted to putting food through the letterbox. Eventually, the dog was taken away by authorities. So, there's a lot to unpick with this couple and this woman. Before we look at Moira and how she knew the couple and how she got on with her neighbours, let's hear from the first of this week's show sponsors. Moira's first meeting of her new neighbours was shortly after they'd moved in. You must wonder how this elderly, fragile, yet vibrant woman must have felt having this volatile and unpredictable Lady lady Karen as her neighbour. She told her sister Annie that Karen had introduced herself by bringing round a bottle of whiskey and asking Moira to have a drink with her. Moira told Karen she didn't drink, but Karen insisted and was, apparently, awfully nosy about the neighbours. Moira summed it up to her sister that she was not keen on Karen. Her sister also recounted that when she would drop Moira home and she went to leave, Moira would say, don't put the light on. I don't want her to know that I'm here. And a neighbour also confirmed that Moira was frightened of her and another insisted this at the time. I mean, that is awful, isn't it? She had an arrangement that she would call another neighbour any time that Karen came round. I don't know why she would see this person as someone to be frightened of, said this neighbour, but that was Moira. I mean, that's actually quite terrifying, really, isn't it? This is just a neighbour. Like, why would you be scared? But, I mean, we we know why, ultimately, she was right to be scared. Absolutely awful. And I really feel for Moira. You know, even saying to her family, I'm scared, you know, don't turn the light. It just made me feel really, really sad. And it made me feel worried, like sad, imagining my grandma... And thinking, like, imagine if she had a neighbour like that that she was scared of. I just, I don't know, makes me feel really awful. And on two occasions previously, Karen had gone round to Moira's with drink late at night. Moira had never asked Karen to leave, saying to her daughter, well, you can't be rude to your neighbours, can you? Mm, Well, I'm of the opinion that actually, yes, you can be rude sometimes. I'm the sort of person who says to my friends, right, guys, I need you to go now because I'm really tired and I want to go to bed. I don't know if that's what you guys' thoughts are on that, but I'm quite blunt like that. However, my friends are also the same back and we're all equally the same. They'll stand up and go, right, I want to go home now. And I'm like, good, I wanted you to leave. Amazing. I just, oh, I really feel for Moira. She just doesn't want to upset this woman who's her neighbour. So what happened then in the early hours of Christmas morning 2008 that would leave this kind-hearted Moira sexually assaulted and battered to death? On Christmas Eve, Moira's daughter rang her to ask her to come and stay with her, but she refused, saying, I've got a chest infection and I'll keep the household up by coughing. So Moira took her stairlift upstairs, got ready for bed and settled down to watch Midnight Mass. She would then say her evening prayers and get ready for bed. Moira had always attended Midnight Mass, but because of this chest infection, she wasn't able to, so she thought watching it on TV was the next best thing. She spoke to Brenda at about 22.40, so about 20 to 11, saying she was all packed for tomorrow. She was really looking forward to seeing her family on Christmas Day. In contrast, Karen didn't get out of bed until midday on Christmas Eve. And based on what is known about Karen, it's quite likely she was hungover. No presents had been bought for her son, resulting in a last minute dash to a toy shop, followed by a dash to the supermarket to get food shopping. 
that breaks my heart because even if you have no money to be spending, you'd be wanting to sort gifts of some sort. You'd be wanting to craft something or create something. Mums I know who have very little, all they think about then is their child. And yet this woman has literally just rolled out of bed hungover. She has a two-year-old in the house and she hasn't even bought many presents. It really broke my heart. She actually joked with the police the following day that she was one of the last to leave the supermarket. Once home, she decided to get the tree out and put up some decorations to make it look Christmassy. Again, I mean, I know he's two, so he's not going to totally get it, but it's Christmas Eve. I'm, my Christmas tree was up maybe a little bit earlier than other people, but at least sometime in December that's before Christmas Eve. Come on, Karen. And at half ten at night, her son is opening her Christmas, his Christmas presents. I mean, what? There were reports of Karen drinking vodka shots and arguing with her husband. And at half eleven, whilst Moira is finishing off saying her prayers, drunk Karen stumbles to her door with a litre of vodka under her arm. According to Karen, she left Moira at 2am after having a drink with her and she went home to sleep in the room next to her son and husband. On Christmas morning, Brenda called her mum to arrange to pick her up, but there was no answer. Further calls were made, again with no answer, and fearing that her mum might have taken a fall, Brenda decided to go round. Her uncle, Arthur, also came round. They opened the door, shouted Moira's name, but there was no reply, so they ventured upstairs. In the bedroom, they found Moira. Brenda placed a gut-wrenching call to the ambulance service. Moira's on the floor naked with her face badly bruised and Brenda recalled saying, oh my god, everything is everywhere, I think someone has broken in. She had head injuries, broken ribs, her lung was punctured. She had bruising all over her body, her face was bruised and there was a mark, a circular mark, indentations on her chin. Looking at her hands, her nails were very badly bruised and Brenda also recalled that Moira was found naked and partially covered. The state of the room alarmed me. I knew it wasn't natural what had happened there. The room was in disarray and when I saw that she was naked, I knew something terrible had happened. She was left lying on her back with a broken crucifix at her side. Next to Moira's body was a large clump of snow white hair which had been ripped from her scalp and she had a bloody wound on her head. The wooden crucifix which had been a wedding present and had hung above her bed now lay next to her body and the metal figure of Christ had been broken in two. Moira's son Dermot turned up to his mother's house and when he was told the news, Dermot started screaming in the street and hearing the commotion, neighbours rushed out, but with two notable exceptions, Karen and Richard. I mean, I just cannot even imagine it. It's Christmas Day. Not that really the day of the year makes much of a difference, but for this woman who was so excited to see her family on Christmas, it, it really does. It somehow makes it 10 times worse. And To come in and find your elderly mother in this situation as well. Oh, it just, yeah, absolutely horrific. The PSNI initially thought this was a burglary gone wrong. The back door was ajar and around the back it was quite private so an intruder could have easily escaped with no one noticing. The dining room had been ransacked and presents were torn open. However, on closer inspection, the dining room was the only room downstairs that was untidy. The front door showed no signs of forced entry. Moira's handbag and purse were still there and her door had an intercom. It was likely that she had known her killer and the detectives quickly switched to thinking that a friend or family member was responsible. So, forensics had showed that the crucifix had been pulled down and used to beat Moira to death. On her chin were circular marks and these were from the figure of Christ who had eight pointed thorns sticking out of his crown. It appeared that the figure had been pushed down on Moira's chin and rolled back and forth with pressure, leaving indentation marks. 
Police were stumped as to why the crucifix had been used to attack Moira. It was hanging on the wall above her bed, but there were a number of brass, chunky candlesticks around the room. They would have made a much better weapon and they were in grabbing distance. To get the crucifix, the murderer would have had to have got on the bed and pulled it down. Neighbours, friends and family were all interviewed by the PSNI. Family members were asked about Moira's finances, in case this was a motive, but they weren't really able to shed any light on this. Suspicion also fell over neighbours that had a key to Moira's property, such as Carmel and Paul Rafferty. And Carmel recalled that there was a terrible atmosphere in the street. Brenda said of her interview, I was also haunted by images of Mummy's rosary beads, which were lying on the floor in a straight line at her feet. And this troubled me so much that when the police were interviewing me, I repeatedly dropped a pair of rosary beads. I wanted the police to understand that someone placed them there like that, deliberately. The person who had murdered Mummy. They weren't placed there to bring comfort. If you want to comfort someone who is dying, you place rosary beads in their hands, not stretched out at their feet. They were placed there in mockery, and it seemed to me that the murderer had surrounded Mummy's dead body with symbols of her faith, like the crucifix by her side, the beads at her feet, for some evil twisted reason. It felt disturbing, and I felt completely surrounded by evil. When D.S. Graham spoke to Richard to see if he had seen or heard anything, Karen came forward to say that she had been in Moira's house having a drink with her until 1am when she left. Moira was not feeling very well, but she seemed on good form apart from that. Karen was seen as a respectable lady, and so she was treated as an important, significant witness. During her witness interview, looking relaxed, wearing a red jacket and blue jeans, Karen recalled, I brought her in a Christmas card. She'd always given us Christmas cards. She thanks me for calling in, and she said it was great to have a bit of company. She was in the armchair and she was wheezy, and because she was in a bit of a bad state, I thought to myself, what am I going to do? I can't leave her like this. She said she'd be okay. And I said, would you just knock on the door next if next door if you aren't? She shouldn't have been on her own in the house. I don't regret staying with her. And Karen said that she left the house at about 1am and then she stayed in bed until midday on Christmas Day. And she ended the interview by saying it's not exactly an ideal Christmas. Neighbour Paul Rafferty then came forward to police and stated at 7.20 on Christmas Day he'd heard raised voices outside and looked out of the window and sitting on the wall between the properties of Karen and Moira was Karen smoking a cigarette and Paul had also heard a male voice as if there was an argument. So then, talking to the police again and Karen changed her statement, rumours in the neighbourhood were rife that the police were talking to Karen. Police had looked at the outgoing calls made on the home phone number of Moira and a number of calls had been made between 7.31 and 7.37. Six of the digits were identical to the office number of Richard, but his office was in the south of Ireland and a Belfast dialing code had been used so the call could not get through. Unsure as to why Moira was trying to call Karen's husband's office in Dublin when he was asleep in the house next door, or was Karen trying to call him or was she just so drunk that she'd forgotten where he was? Police had also located an empty bottle of vodka in Moira's flat that was empty, barring about five mil, and there was no alcohol showing up in her toxicology report. So Karen Walsh was now being treated as a suspect in the murder of Moira Rankin. When she was arrested and cautioned, Karen replied, I can't believe this, this is bizarre. But according to the arresting officer, she showed no emotion whatsoever. Further disturbing reports emerged from the PM conducted by highly respected pathologist Professor Jack Crane, which cast doubt on Karen being the killer. Professor Crane reported there had been bruising and bleeding around Moira's genitalia, showing that there had been interference. And police were forced to look again at the evidence because, according to them, a sexual attack committed by another woman on another woman is extremely rare. And the cat has put here that there's not really many stats on this, but you know the police were looking again because this seemed very very unlikely 
They re-looked at the witness statement of Paul Rafferty. They also spoke to Richard. Richard told the PSNI that Karen had asked him not to disclose she had slept on the landing that night. They did continue to keep testing and they didn't, you know, write this off entirely. Crucially, further tests carried out showed that there was no male DNA on the crucifix. So the police were back to their original suspect, Karen Walsh. And the theory was now that she'd staged the scene and simulated a sexual assault to divert suspicion away from her. They were confident she was their suspect. During interview for murder, then Karen gave a pre-prepared statement in which she said... I had no involvement in the death of Moira. I did not in any way assault Moira. I am very upset at this moment. This whole thing has been a complete nightmare. There's no compassion for Moira and her family. Karen just tried to divert suspicion away from herself, telling police she'd seen suspicious European, Eastern European males hanging around outside the houses. Stupid stuff like that. And how awful this was for her. Whilst in police custody, a number of bruises were seen on Karen's body. And she told the police this was a result of her pulling items up the stairs. However, forensics disagreed with this statement. And then she changed her story and said they were caused when she fell, staying in a hotel in Dublin. But ambulance control said no ambulance had been sent out for Karen and disproved the story that she'd given yet again. Karen was charged with murder and she spent seven weeks in custody before getting bail due to her previous good character and her bail conditions required her not to be in the Newry area. So she moved back down to Dublin. She was renting the house out so she stayed in a gable near the property. And neighbours there reported loud rows between Karen and Richard, doors slamming, cars driving off viciously, and one neighbour reported that Richard seemed very submissive to Karen. Another said Karen was often drunk and had strips off her husband. Whilst in Dublin, Karen booked an appointment at the exclusive Blackrock Clinic where she'd been regularly receiving Botox injections. The check she used bounced and the doctor informed the guarder and as there was now concerns that Karen may have been trying to alter her appearance from the cosmetic surgery, her bail application was revoked and she was back in prison. An inmate had also told the PSNI that when Karen had been in there prior to her bail, she'd actually talked about getting a false passport and potentially fleeing the country. There were 36 hearings such as bail and committal hearings before eventually they went to court in 2011. It took four attempts to get this murder to trial as Karen kept on sacking her defence team. The first trial was set for May 2010, but it was prolonged until September 2011, all at public expense. The trial was moved to Belfast and it started on the 20th of September 2011 with a jury of seven women and five men. The QC for the CPS said that they had a powerful case against Karen, listing evidence such as the phone calls, the DNA, no forced entry to the home, no other evidence linking someone else to the crime. During the trial, Karen remained composed and stony-faced. The court was told that DNA evidence found on Moira's chin and the marks from the crown and thorns came from someone other than the alleged killer was one in a billion, and DNA matching Karen Walsh was found on Moira's breasts and on the crucifix. The defence put forward this point that actually Karen's DNA was on Moira because she'd helped her put on her nebulizer mask. I mean, she's still trying to say that she was a nice, caring lady to this old person that she lived near to. It's horrendous. This old lady that she was actually quite terrified of Karen as well. Breaks my heart. Karen took the stand and for once, her composure broke. When it was put to Karen that she'd killed Moira, after admonishing her about drinking, Karen said, I've done nothing. I was very nice to that woman. I have all along told the truth about this. I could not have been nicer to Mrs Rankin. I have no idea what happened to Mrs Rankin. I just knew she was perfect when I left her. The prosecuting QC suggested that she had pushed Moira, hit her about the head with a crucifix, and then realising that she'd killed her, 
decided to make it look like a burglary gone wrong and then carried out the sexual assault using the crucifix to make it look like the attacker was a male. He put it to Karen that she must have taken off Moira's nightdress, staged a sexual assault, and this was how her DNA was on Moira's breasts. Karen denied all of this and she reiterated she could not have been nicer. She said over 30 times during the court appearance that she could not have been nicer to Karen. Moira's family was distraught because Karen kept on trying to infer that she was a friend of Moira's. She said that Moira had said she was a good neighbour. Dr. Declan Gillison then took the stand and he stated that Moira's sexual assault injuries were trivial, may have happened from Moira falling on a bit of furniture, suggested that she had climbed on the bed to take down the crucifix, fallen against a mirror and suffered a straddle injury and he told the jury that he believed the 15 injuries to her ribs were post-mortem and were a result of someone attempting to resuscitate Moira. The prosecution argued that whilst the case against Karen Walsh was circumstantial, Putting all the evidence together resulted in an overwhelming case that established her guilt and they said it was absolutely crystal clear that the evidence pointed to her. Were she innocent, then Karen must be the unluckiest person in the world. But the defence said all the evidence is circumstantial. It was all innocent and DNA had been indirectly transferred. They had not brought up a case against his client that was beyond reasonable doubt. And so summing up the case, Judge Justice Hart said that the jury must reach its verdict with complete absence of sympathy or prejudice. And I think that's very, very fair, actually. In this case, they had to just look at the facts and the information they had. Karen's husband, Richard, had stayed loyal to his wife and had travelled up from Dublin on a regular basis to see her. But he had also shown no signs of emotion during the trial. Even when horrific accounts of the sexual assault were discussed, he kept his eyes to the ground And there was a high contrast of this lonely composed figure of Richard against the emotional and plentiful family of Moira. It took the jury one hour and 52 minutes to come back with a verdict. Richard missed the verdict actually due to the court being full so he waited outside with journalists to hear his wife's fate. Karen Walsh was unanimously found guilty of murder and sexual assault. And Karen simply said in in response, I am innocent as she was led away. As Karen had protested her innocence, her motive for this murder and sexual assault was never confirmed. However, a remand prisoner that Karen was in prison with came forward and she was able to provide information to the police that was not known outside of the investigative team. She she stated that Karen had told her she'd been drinking on Christmas Eve and had rows with her husband so she went to Moira's so she could carry on drinking out of her own house. Karen said that Moira had started to lecture her about her drinking and that it was ruining her life, saying, you've got a child to think about. Karen just didn't want to listen. And you can understand this. Moira must have felt awful for this little boy, this two-year-old boy in the house. His mum's here drinking instead of being there, getting ready for Christmas with him. And Moira loved family. She loved, she was the grandmother to all the kids in the area. It would have broken her heart to see her drinking. You can imagine that she would have said something, trying to be a nice person, trying to get her to listen. But Karen didn't want to listen. Moira had placed her arms on Karen. Karen pushed her away and she lost her balance and hit her head. And Karen then hit her with the crucifix so hard it broke. She then put something inside Moira to make it look like someone had had sex with her. The prisoner named Prisoner A said, you do know that you've confessed to murdering her and said that she was so sickened that she walked away. Obviously, there were concerns about the credibility of Witness A because she's on remand and Her testimony was never used due to the possible credibility issues and the overwhelming amount of evidence. But this makes sense as a possible explanation. To be honest, it's it's probably the only possible explanation. Maybe Karen 
just snapped in her drunk state. But she still had the awareness to stage the crime scene and and try to make it look like a male suspect. Karen was given 20 years in prison to serve in Hyde Bank Prison in Belfast. And this is the longest jail sentence ever given to a female in Northern Ireland. Judge Mr Justice Hart quoted, This additional degradation, so the sexual assault, represents a very serious aggravating factor in an already grave case. And his sentence reflected the exceptional vulnerability of Moira Rankin and the truly heinous nature of the crime. After the trial, Moira's sister, Moirad, said of Walsh, she is pure evil, and during the trial we wondered, did other people see her the way we did? There was no motive, nothing. She denies having anything to do with it. And then Richard went back to work in Dublin less than 10 days after Karen was convicted, and he never made any comment ever publicly about his wife or the murder. He just left. After the court case, although the family were happy with the outcome, there was anger and resentment about how the family of victims were treated. The family accused Karen Walsh of playing games with them and of the judicial system for allowing this because Karen was able to follow the victim's family into the toilets. During court sessions, she'd stare at the family. At all of the previous hearings, she was sat with Moira's family. Daughter Moira had said, She was always kind of taunting us and looking at us. The family were also unhappy with how long it took for the courts to take this case to court. It took two years and ten months. The family had to attend the court over 50 times before the trial. And it came about as well that over £15,000 had been spent on legal aid for Karen. So the figure doesn't even cover the barristers that were consulted or her lawyers appearing at Crown Courts. And so people quite often said it beggared belief that a wealthy woman who could afford to stay in an expensive hotel for five days was allowed access to legal aid. That's always a tricky one, isn't it? And it'd be interesting to hear everyone else's thoughts on that side of things. Karen appealed both her sentence and the verdict in November 2011. In March 2015, her appeal was held, with the defence focusing on the phone calls that were made from Moira's home phone and the DNA evidence. They cited that the trial judge failed to properly direct the jury about the time of death DNA evidence, Karen's intoxication levels and the intention of who was responsible and due to this they said the verdict was unsafe, there ought to be a retrial. Mr O'Donoghue defending argued that because the Crown used his client's dishonesty as evidence of her guilt in a circumstantial case as opposed to merely reflecting on her credibility, direction should have been given on the issue. He also argued that phone call records held by the police were not properly disclosed at trial Um, He claimed that three calls made to Moira around 10am were answered. Um, It kind of, he said basically this meant that it wasn't just Karen and Moira's house on the day of her death. But they go and kind of like, well, that doesn't say who answered the phone. Like, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't even tell you if the phone had been answered. It was argued by the defence that the jury wasn't given proper guidance on whether Karen could have intended to kill or inflict serious injury to Moira based on her level of intoxication. Um, I mean, really, does it, does it really matter whether she was so intoxicated she didn't really know what she was doing? She then had the, the afterthought to stage the crime scene. And a month later, the appeal judges had their decision. Karen Walsh had failed in her appeal on all grounds. The court heard that the DNA recovered from the murder victim's chin contained all 11 markers matching those of Walsh and the probability of a different match was put at less than one in a billion people. And the judges also decided that directions were given to the jury on the alcohol consumption issues. And one of the judges also pointed out that there were no signs of any subsequent forced entry. Um, They talked about the fact that 
she was trying to make those phone calls 7.31, It was overwhelming evidence that the applicant was using the deceased phone at the time and this didn't raise a case that Karen was so drunk that it affected the issue whether or not she had intent to kill. And they summed it up by confirming we have no sense of unease about the safety of this conviction, which I think is really, really fair. And Karen, who appeared by prison video link, gesticulated and started to say something as her appeal was thrown out before falling silent once more. It had now cost over £250,000 in legal aid for Karen. It didn't even include her bill for the failed appeal. And then Karen then further appealed for her case to be put forward in front of the Supreme Court in London. In November 2015, judges in Belfast refused a further appeal. Karen's team were again stating that due to the amount of vodka she'd drunk that night, it had impacted her intent to kill Moira Rankin. They ruled that no point of law of general importance had been raised worthy enough of consideration by the Supreme Court in London. In November 2015, law was passed in Northern Ireland that allowed the legal legal services agency to recoup costs from wealthy criminals who could have afforded not to have had legal aid, if that makes sense. Unfortunately, though, it can't be applied retrospectively. So Karen Walsh doesn't have to pay a penny back of all of the legal aid she had. And she's still in prison, in Hyde Bank Prison in Belfast. She'd struck up a friendship with another notorious prisoner, double murderer Hazel Stewart, and she will not be released until she is a pensioner too. In a recent interview, Brenda said she still has flashbacks of that Christmas morning when she found her mum. With the help of family and friends, she has found the strength and courage to move on and remember her mum the way she lived rather than the way she died. And Brenda has since written about how her faith has been challenged saying that's the thing about traumatic memories, they don't really ever go away, but you learn to cope with them. I also find the image of the crucified Christ too distressing to look at. I have not attended Good Friday ceremonies for the, since the murder for this reason, and you won't find a crucifix hanging anywhere in my home. The crucifixes that once hung on the wall are now under beds or tucked away, out of sight in the back of drawers, and I know my mother would probably not approve of this, but I hope she would understand. Brenda continued, One of the first things I noticed was Mummy's collection of prayer books on the dining room table. I lifted the book that sat on the top of the pile and the marker was on Christmas Day. I opened the book and read the last reflection that she must have read that Christmas Eve, just hours before her death. It said, Jesus, for you I live. Jesus, for you I die. Jesus, I want to be yours in life and death. And Brenda said, I know I was meant to find those prayer books. I was meant to read the last prayers that Mummy read before she died. I had been so afraid to go back into the house, but when I opened Mummy's prayer book, I no longer felt afraid. I felt reassured and filled with her strength and her faith. So there we go, guys. Thank you so much, Kat, for an amazing case and an amazing retelling of Moira and her family and the absolutely horrific horrific murder that took place at Christmas so actually do you know I'm I'm really really now I've now I've presented this to you in I've done it properly I'm even more glad that we're not doing this episode on Christmas I think it would have been the 23rd of December or so it's just too close 24th or no 22nd or 23rd too close I'm so glad we're not doing that thank you so much again Kat for your script and like we said like I said at the beginning of the show If anybody does fancy writing a script for us, feel free to send something over. If it's something we can use as is, that's amazing. And if we want to make a few tweaks, we'll make a few tweaks. We'll always double check with you before we go ahead with anything. And yeah, huge thank you to everybody for joining in 
listening to this week's episode. We will be back next week for the season finale of season six. And Patreons, you will be having your November patron episode out shortly. Should be with you any day now. And then we will also have a December patron episode. So if you're a patron supporter, you'll have something in between the gap between our final episode of the series the end of the year and then everyone else will be back at the beginning of 2022 which is really crazy to say isn't it still feels like 2019 at the moment so we'll be back with you next week it'll be both of us i absolutely promise thank you so much for listening and don't forget to check out the show sponsors this week which are best fiends and beer 52 have a good one and we'll see you then bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.